Good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back to our Parsha Perspectives for today, our weekly review of the Parsha of the Week, with an emphasis on trying to extract perspectives and insights, inspiration for today. I want to thank our generous uh, sheer sponsors series for the year, our dear friends Becky and Avi Katz, and family, loving memory of Becky's father, David David Grossman, David Ben Menachem Manish. Thank you so much for your generosity and for your sponsorship. This week we have the privilege of beginning together the book of Shmos, the second book of the Torah. If the first book of the Torah represents the journey from a dysfunctional family to a family one, and the debate uh, exists, we spoke about it a little bit last week, whether in fact last week's Parsha ended with a functional family. Did Yosef forgive his brothers? Did he maintain the resentment and the animosity? Does it continue forth until today? This in fact was a debate and is debatable. But we move now from the formation of a family and the story of a family into the formation of a nation and of a people. A disparate group, 70 who descended to Egypt, who emerged and came out as a nation, as a complete nation. So I want to begin, even before we enter the first Pasuk, Perak Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, I want to begin with an introduction, and it's not my introduction, it's the introduction of the Ramban, Rav Moshe ben Nachman, Nachmanides, the great Ramban. And the Ramban in his introduction mentions the following. If you have a Mikros Gedolos or Ramban, feel free to follow inside. I always love to be able to learn together in the primary source directly. So the Ramban writes the following. Hishlim of Sefer Breshis, Shu Sefer Yitzira, the uh, Torah concluded the book of Bereshit, Genesis, the first book of the Torah, which is the story of Yitzira. It's the story of creation. It's the story of formation. It is the completion of the story of the creation of the world, the six days of creation, Genesis, and all that's in it, all that will be created. If you have to summarize, says the Ramban, what the essence of the book of Bereshit, the first book of the Torah, is about, it's about creation. Creation of the world, creation of the seas and the oceans, of the skies, the constellations, creation of the animal world, and creation of humanity on the sixth day, the culmination, the climax of creation, creation of rest on the seventh day, which is not just the abstaining from work, it's not passive, but the active creation of rest. But ultimately, the Ramban continues the creation of our matriarchs and patriarchs as the progenitors of the first family is also a continuity of the act of creation. It too is part of creation. It's not creation of a new biological entity. It's not creation of a new species physically, but it represents the creation of a new species spiritually. The Avos, Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, they are Ke'en Yitzira Lizaram. It is as if a new existence, a new entity, a new formation for their progeny, for us. That line alone is worth unpacking. We don't have the time. But for the Ramban, the idea that our sacred avos and imahos, our sacred matriarchs and patriarchs, are not simply human beings like any other, but they have a distinction. They are the progenitors of us, of a nation, of a people, of a covenantal community, of a people who have a mission and who are driven. They are Yitzira Lizaram. They are a new entity, a brand new formation. And they were an archetype. They were a paradigm. They were foretelling and foreboding all that would happen to us after. And after they were completed, a second book, the new book, the book that's called Shmos. Our rabbis refer to it as Sefer HaGeula, the book of redemption. We translate it in the Latin as the Exodus. So we went from the formation of the first family who embedded the DNA spiritually in each and every one of us, the DNA of, of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, the DNA of Emes and Gvura, of Chesed, of Torah. It's all embedded inside us. It created a continuity of a new entity, of a new species called the Jewish people, the Ivrim. And... And now we move over to a nation and the story of how we became a nation, of how we were charged, as how we were emerged from the kiln of Egypt, as if this oven, we come out baked, cooked and ready. Where did that happen? In the gullus, in the exile, in the harshness of the exile, the first exile of Egypt. 
And it is the story of the redemption from there. So the Ramban is actually answering a question. Right? We know that Rashi, the Ramban, in early medieval commentaries, they didn't formulate their commentary as question-answer, question-answer, as we would be accustomed to today. Instead, they offer a commentary and they challenge us, what was the question that was bothering me? What were they addressing? What were they trying to answer? So the Ramban is bothered by, if you were to read the Torah in succession, don't read it as separate volumes. This is the volume of, of Shmos. It's a whole new book, a whole new volume. But read it in this volume, which is the Chumash, all five books in one. And you end Bracious. Bracious ends by listing and delineating all the names of those who went down, who descended to Egypt. And then Shmos begins with what? listing and delineating the names of all those who descended to Egypt. Hello, we were just there. We just saw that. We just read that. What's new? Why don't you teach me something I don't know? Wonders the Ramban. And his answer is because that list of name plays two roles. It is the closure of the book of Bracious. It is the end of the story of the formation of the first family. But it's also the introduction. It's also the very beginning of the story of our nation, of how we were in servitude, and how we emerge with Geula. Because their descent to Egypt was the beginning of a state of exile. And the book of, of Shemot says the Ramban, in this introduction, is an entire story of Galus to Geula. The whole theme, the essence, the energy, what we are to learn from this book, from beginning to end, 40 chapters is the story of Gullus, of exile, of darkness, of distance, to Geula, to redemption, to light, to coming into the light, and to being redeemed. Ki me'az huchal. It was from that descent that it was launched, that it began. So, if you'll ask, before we even continue in the Ramban, Rav Shechter in his Sefer and Parsha discusses this, and I've heard him say it many, many times. How can you describe that Shmos is the story of Gullus to Geula? Gullus, I got. What are we going to start with? Right after we're reintroduced to all the names of the people who descend, then we get Vayakam el There was a new king who arose, and he's threatened by the Jewish people, the question of their loyalty. He feels that they're going to grow in magnitude. They're going to outnumber him. They're going to rebel, and therefore he questions their loyalty, and he persecutes and oppresses them. The fact that the book begins with Gullus, I got you don't have to be a scholar to read the beginning of Shmos and see it beginning with the theme, with the story of Gullus. But Geula? Where's the Geula? Where's the redemption? You get to the end of the book of Shmos, and where are the Jewish people? Where do we emerge? The first half is all about the story of being in Egypt suffering, Hashem's magnificent miracles that redeemed us, the emancipation, the liberation from Egypt. We then get to our Sinai, we get to the, the laws, Mishpatim, civil and, and, uh, and uh, uh, criminal and all kinds of laws from the Torah. And then we get to the story of the Mishkan. And where do we end up at the end of the book of, at the end of the book of Shmos? We're in the desert. We're wandering in the desert. We're still lost. If Geula is a rival in Israel, if Geula is Eretz Canaan, Eretz Yisrael, if Geula is Israel, how is the end of the book of Shmos, the story of Gaulus to Geula? Where's the Geula? So the Ramban himself answers. Really, the Gaulus is a full closure. Its real conclusion is only when we come home to our homeland, to Israel. And we come back to the status of the distinction of our matriarchs and patriarchs. And when we emerge from Egypt, even though we were no longer under bondage, even though we no longer had taskmasters who were, taskmasters who were oppressing us, that's still not yet geula. We were in a foreign land, wandering in the desert. You know what Geula was when we stood at Har Sinai, when we stood at the base of Sinai, and that mon, in that in that unparalleled, unprecedented experience of revelation, when Hashem said, "Here is my vision, my mission, the blueprint for this world. Now go do, now go and do, now go and live, now go and find meaning, now go and repair and mold that world in my image." When we stood at Har Sinai, and God revealed Himself 
an unprecedented and unparalleled revelation. And we had the greatest contact human beings have had to him when we experienced the Shekhinah as a Shachain, the Shekhinah, God's intense countenance. The root of the word Shekhinah is Shachain as a neighbor. We experienced him palpably, as if tangibly. We had no doubt, no uncertainty. We knew that he was there. We were back to where Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov Sarif Garachal and Leah were. When we wandered in a desert, we didn't know if he existed. When we were suffering in the bondage of Egypt, we wondered, where is God? But when we stood at Har Sinai, and then, says the Ramban, when we built a Mishkan, which is the reenactment and the continuity of Har Sinai, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the Beis HaMikdash, the Mikdash Ma'at called our shul, is an effort to keep going back to Sinai. We have continued to try to go back to Sinai over and over ever since we walked away because we're trying to experience a geula, a redemption, a redemption of our soul, freed from the bondage of the addiction, the trappings, the compulsions of this world. And that's why the end of the book of Shmos is the building of the Mishkan, a permanent dwelling place for God, a place to go when you craved contact with Shechina, when you want to know that God is not some esoteric, abstract theory. God is not someone you read about in a book, but God is somebody that you have a relationship with, that you're in love with, that loves you, that you can lean on and rely and confide in, and that He's involved intimately in every aspect of your life. When you wanted to know the Shekhinah is your Shachain, that He's your neighbor, and that you have contact and connection with Him, and that you have the same level of certainty and confidence that we had when we stood at our Sinai, where did you go? To the Mishkan. The place of Hashra Sashkina. So says the Ramban. Says the Ramban. The book of Shmos is the story of Golos to Geula. It's the story of exile to redemption. I, where at the end of the book are we redeemed? We're not yet in Israel. That's not the definition of redemption. The definition of redemption is not geographically being in Israel. The definition of redemption is having a relationship with God, of knowing there's something bigger than ourselves. And that, says the Ramban, is why the book is called Sefer Geula. Geula. We were liberated from the bondage of Egypt, but that didn't mean anything. So the Ramban is saying such a critically important point that for us, liberation, redemption, emancipation is not just what we're freed from. It's not just getting out from under the oppression. It's not just what we want to have end, but it's where are you going with it. When you're given the gift of life and the gift of light, when you're given that second chance or third chance, when you are redeemed from whatever is your bondage. Mitzrayim means Egypt, a geographic place and a nation. But the root of the word Mitzrayim is Metzar. It means from the constraints, from the straits. It means when the world feels like it's caving in and you want out. When you have to, when you have to quarantine and when you have to socially distance and when you have to not see or kiss your grandchildren or hug your child or share Shabbos meals with friends and you feel, I'm in a Mitzrayim, I'm in a Metzar, I want to get out then it's two parts. The gullus is being there, the ge'ula is getting out, but that's not ge'ula. Ge'ula is not only getting out, ge'ula is where do you go from there? Where do you go from there? The Ramban writes the story of this book, the theme, the essence of this book, and we're spending so much time on this overview because we can only understand the transition of the chapters of the Parshios. We can only understand the narrative and the story and its deeper meaning and purpose and its relevance for us today if we understand that this is the story. The story is not just getting out from slavery because there have been unfortunately and tragically and what an indictment of humanity, there have been countless nations, countless persecuted people, countless genocides, countless slavery, and yet they didn't all become God's chosen people. They didn't all become a covenantal community. God didn't include them all in a book divinely written. Why is the Jewish story different? Because not only was it our freedom from, but I'll quote to you Eric Fromm. Eric Fromm was a philosopher who lived in the 20th century, 1900-1980, and he coined an expression which I find so powerful. He distinguishes between what he calls freedom from and freedom to. Freedom from and freedom to. Freedom from is a negative freedom. It, it lets you out of restrictions, like social conventions that are placed by others. It's a kind of freedom that... Um, that has, has binded you or, or bonded you or put you in bondage, but it's a freedom from. What do you do with it is the question of freedom to. Judaism is not as focused on freedom from as we are on freedom to. Now, of course, freedom to presupposes a freedom from, but if all you think about is freedom from, then what? Then what? 
Where do you go from there? What do you do with that newfound freedom? How does that mold and shape who you are? How does it give you meaning or purpose? What does it even mean? What does it even mean? He writes, in the process of becoming freed from authority, we're left with feelings of hopelessness that will not abate until we see our freedom too and develop some form of replacement of the old order. So we need not just freedom from, which is passive, but freedom too. And I love that formulation. I think it's exactly what the Ramban is writing. That the story of Gullahs to Geula is not just the Geula that we got out of Egypt, but rather closing the loop. The real definition of the Geula that we experienced was coming to Har Sinai. Was standing at Sinai and becoming charged with a mission, with being a covenantal community, with having a life that matters, with making a difference. That's not just the freedom from the oppression of Egypt. That is the freedom to who we're meant to be, who we want to be, and to become the best version of ourselves. Freedom from, freedom to, Gullahs to Geula, that is the essence of this, that is the essence of this book. And I think that we should consider, and we ought to consider, as the vaccinations have begun, and many of you have them, many of you are waiting in line, and please God, we should all be zocha to get them quickly, and to return to some sense of normalcy. It's time to think about not just what we want to be liberated from. I don't want to be isolated, I don't want to be quarantined, I don't want to be distanced. But what will you do with that? And how will your life be different? When you can reconvene, and when community can congregate, and when you can come together with children, with grandchildren, socially with friends, what will that look like? Will we resume exactly what was the same? Or are we different? Is our world different? Is our mission different? Will those experiences be different? Not just freedom from what this year has given us, what coronavirus and this pandemic has imposed on us, not just freedom from, not just getting out of Gullus, but Geula. Where is our freedom to is what will define us. For Kla Yisrael Tarsina, it's Hashras Hashchina. It is a more inspired living and lifestyle. Not just freedom from, but a sense of freedom too. Okay, with that we can begin. Perak Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, in the Yard Scroll Stone Chumash, it is on page 292. These are the names of the Jewish people who are coming to Egypt. Again, we saw the Ramban gives his reason. Why are we starting all over again? Why are we stating all over again? The names, the 70, who they were, how they got there. Because we used it at the end of Bresha, said the Ramban. It's the end of that story. We use it to introduce Shmos. It's the beginning of this story of Gullus to Geula. Rashi, however, says, Even though they were all counted with their name in their lives, and the Almighty, the Ribbon Shalom, the Abishter, goes back and he counts again after their death. Hashem has an affection. He has an unquenchable love for we, His children, for the Jewish people. And He counts us like some count the stars. Some who love astrology, astronomy, they look at the stars, and that's this star, and that's that star. Some love their stocks, and they're constantly looking at their stocks, and they're constantly seeing where they're at. Some love their sports figures, what are their RBIs, and how many points per game, and how many triple-doubles, how many completed passes. What we count and what we review reflects what we love and what we cherish. And some... Some can't stop looking at the pictures of, of their children and grandchildren. What we count and what we review and what we look at insatiably reflects what we love. So you know what Hashem loves? You know what He cherishes? You know what He can't stop counting? Us! He can't stop counting us. He loves us. And that's the Pasuka. We say it in our davening as well in the second Hallelujah. HaKadosh Baruch who counts us, likens us to stars. Why are we compared to stars? Why can't Rashi just tell us that Hashem counts us because He loves us? Chibasam. It's affection. It's love. He cherishes that. So He just keeps counting us. Why do we have to be likened to stars? What is the metaphor of the star? And there are many, many answers. But I want to share with you from Rav Druk, our first Rav Druk of the day, Eish Tomid. Doesn't appear many have asked because um, Baruch Hashem, as we learn His Svarim together, many have wanted to get them for themselves. I so admire that you want to learn it and continue to see other pieces we don't quote. So it's hard safer to get, Eish Tamid, and it's not yet translated. But he says here, The love, the affection of the Jewish people is likened to the metaphor of the love and the affection for a star. But we have to understand that Why the Jewish people likened to stars? They're both cherished and beloved to God. They are inanimate objects. The stars are Acts of creation, human beings are animated. We're Tzalem Elohim. Isn't it somewhat degrading? Isn't it somewhat insulting to a certain degree to liken us, to compare us to simple stars? 
So says Rav Druk, Yishmakam Levar Harem is bezeh. Perhaps one can suggest an answer. Shahrei HaKochavim Ba'atzma Me'irim. Stars themselves illuminate. Omnam Yoshvei Ha'aretz, Lif'amim Ein Ramis Or Kochavim. Right now it's daytime outside. If you look out the window in Boca Raton, Florida, 9.50 a.m. as we record, as we stream live, it is daytime. And if you look up at the sky, if you look up at the heavens, you will not see stars. Or at night, even at night, if there are clouds that are blocking the stars, if it is an overcast evening, you're not going to see. If the stars are incredibly far away and you don't have a telescope, you cannot see them or study them. But our view and our exposure to them, our ability and capacity to see has nothing to do with whether, in fact, they continue to illuminate. Even when we can't perceive them, even when we cannot see them, because they're far away or they're covered by clouds, nevertheless, they're always there and they're always illuminating. So to the Jewish people, says Rav Druk, When a person is living in a stage of their life that they feel like I'm covered by a cloud, how does somebody who's depressed, somebody who's down and out, somebody who's despondent, somebody who's going through a hard time, very often describes it as, I'm, in a, I'm just in a haze, I'm in a cloud. I'm in such a dark place and dark period, and I'm living in a cloud, I can't see. I'm cloaked in darkness, I'm cloaked in a cloud. Sometimes we are that star covered in a cloud. A person is living in a spiritual darkness. Even when we're living in a state of spiritual exile, of being distanced, of doubt and uncertainty, that is only external, it's only surface, it's only superficial. Sometimes a person's going through a phase, a stage. Sometimes they've made mistakes. Sometimes they've been hurt by others where they feel, I'm not illuminating. I'm not on fire. I'm not adding light to the world. All I am is darkness. All I am is depression, despondency. All I am is uh, I've made mistakes and they're irreversible and and, and irrevocable. A person needs to know, says Rav Druk, HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves us like a star. And that star, whatever it looks like on the outside, from here on earth, whether you can see it or you can't see it, whether you can study it or you can't study it, whether you can benefit from its light or you don't even know it's shining, but we know the star is up there. We need to know inside every one of us is a star. Inside every one of us is a shining star, an all-star, a superstar. And even when we don't feel like it, and even when on the surface you can't see it, and even when others don't perceive it, and even when we don't believe it, know that as long as you have a Tzalem Elohim inside you, as long as God is choosing to breathe through you, as long as you woke up this morning with breath in your lungs, there is a superstar and an all-star inside you. And even if others can't see it and you don't believe it or see it, there is a shining star, a superstar, an all-star as long as it's a Tzalem Elohim. And that's what it means. The same way Hashem loves the stars and continues to count them, He loves us. Whether we are acting like a superstar or not, whether it is perceivable who we can be or not, inside us is that Tzalem Elohim, is that superstar. He believes in us, we have to believe in us. Rav Tzadik HaKohen of Lublin writes that there are two mitzvahs of Amuna. There's the Amuna we have in Hashem, and there's the Amuna we have to have faith that Hashem believes in us. Which of the faiths is harder? Sometimes it's harder to think. Sometimes it's harder to believe that Hashem believes in us than that we believe in Him. But a person needs to know, You gave me back my neshama bechemla with kindness. Your emuna, God, is great. In whom is God's emuna? His emuna is in us. A person has to know there is that superstar, that shining star inside us. We got to bring it out. We got to work hard. We got to make it come into existence, we got to make it so others can see it, but that it is a superstar inside us. Next, Rav Druk, peace. The Parsha, the second book of the Torah, we're going to try to get past the opening Pasuk today, but it begins, these are the names of the Jewish people, Haba'im Mitzrayma, Es Yaakov Yishu Beisobo, should be bothered. What, by what? What does it say? These are the names of the people, Haba'im Mitzrayma. What should it say? Asher, Ba'u Mitzrayma. What do you mean, Haba'im Mitzrayma? What a bizarre formulation. Says the Medrash Tanchuma, Haba'im Mitzrayma, V'chiyayom Ba'im. What are you talking about? We're reading the story thousands of years later. 
They're not arriving in Egypt today. We are reading a piece of history. It's a story from the past. So it should say, Asher ba'u, that came to Egypt. Not Asher ba'im, that are coming. It's been a long time. It's been a very long time since they came. As long as Yosef was alive, Yosef bore the burden. As long as Yosef was alive, we were well and good. When Yosef died, that's when it all went down. That's when they had to bear the burden and the bondage. And it's as if that day they came to Egypt. So even though the Jewish people had descended to Egypt long before the bondage began, Yaakov came down. Yaakov lived there 17 years before he died. And the brothers and Yosef lived there a long time after. So they had been in Egypt already a long time before the book of Shmos begins. So it should begin Asher Ba'u. They came here a while ago. And now, Vayaka Malachadash, there's a new paro who's going to persecute. Why does it make it sound? Says the Medjish Tanchuma, because... As long as Yosef was alive, they had cover. But when Yosef died, that's when the bondage began. And therefore, it was as if that's when immediately they came down to Egypt, associated and correlated with when he died. Says Rav Druk, The the Dasikan and Balayatosos give a different answer. But says Rav Juk, I want to offer my own answer. Why does the Torah formulate it as this is the story of the Jewish people who are coming to Egypt, not who came in past tense? Because, says Rav Juk, the Torah wants us to know that the Jewish people never fully settled in Egypt. We never arrived. We never unpacked, we never came, we never settled. Like it says at the end of Bereshus, Lagur, Lagur is Milashon Ger, an immigrant, a stranger, not a Toshav. And we extrapolate in the Haggadah, In the Haggadah, it's not the interesting part, and it's not the eating part, and it's not the Dvar Torah part, so you may not remember it. But we dwelled there as a Ger, he didn't come permanently. He didn't move his, he didn't notify all the, a change of mailing address. He was just there temporarily. We have to know that we are strangers, we are immigrants, we are foreigners. We have to know there is only one place for us to be and to return to. And therefore we are in a state not of, we are in a state perpetually of Haba'im. Not Asher Ba'u. We didn't come down and we're here. We're not in America or Chutzlar, or the diaspora permanently. We are strangers, we're foreigners, we're here temporarily. We are forever in a state of Haba'im, never having fully settled. The Fiza Mizboer, Shaim Lo Bo Keva, Elahim Kol Ha'es Hayu Begeder Ba'im. We were always in a state and a status of coming, not having arrived. And that's also a lesson for us in our gullus, in our diaspora, to understand as comfortable as some may be, to always have a mind about where we belong. And not if, but when we are returning to our homeland. My uh, good friend Rabbi Josh Fest told me that the numbers of Nefesh Benefesh applicants has skyrocketed. And even if only a fraction of the people follow through when this is over, it'll be a multiple of how many usually go annually. But every one of us should be struggling not with if, but when it's our time to go home. We are ba'im. We are still yet only coming here. And we're here temporarily, not permanently. And perhaps that's why the Torah formulates it in this way. Continuing. That's my chumash. But Salavichik has a whole other interpretation of ba'im and ba'u. How long do you have to be there to be a citizen? To not give it up? And this is, he relates it to Paro. Paro persecuted us because he questioned our loyalty. Had we ever fully arrived? Had we ever fully unpacked? How could we be loyal to our home, to our home, to our home country, if in fact we were only um, we were only there temporarily? You can see Rabbi Soloveitchik's interpretation. But continuing, so the Torah tells us that Yosef died, and that whole generation, and the Jewish people We promulgated, proliferated. We had a lot of children. We spread. The land was filled with them. Sounds like something our enemies would say. And the land was filled with them, the Jewish people. Only the Torah is saying it about us. The land was filled with us. Yosef, there was a new king who didn't know Yosef. 
How is that possible? What does that mean? We know the two interpretations of Rashi. Was it the same king, but he forgot what Yosef had done? Or was it a new king who had no uh, sense of history, no sense of appreciation of what Yosef had done? In fact, we're not going to read it, but Rav Druk has a whole piece that what precipitated the persecution was the lack of Hakaras Atov. The evil of Mitzrayim was an extension of, of an ingratitude. They failed to appreciate that Yosef, our forefather, had saved the economy, had saved the country, had saved their people. And they should have perpetually preserved that gratitude. But they didn't. They let it slip. And that's the beginning of wickedness. How can you persecute when you're ungrateful? How can you persecute when you don't see the humanity and you don't see the good that others have done for you or are capable of doing for you? That is the beginning of the prerequisite to a sense of persecution. Havan is Chakmalos. They said, what are we going to do? What if they outnumber us? What if they rise up and rebel against us? What do we do? So they said, you know what? Let's oppress them. And if we press them and distract them, we overwhelm them, and they have no margin, no serenity, no peace of mind, no sense of self, they'll never be in a position to organize and to be able to rebel against us. They made her bitter with backbreaking labor. We've talked all about this in previous year. I'm so tempted to tell you the great Divrei Torah we shared then, but alas, we have to do new topics each year. Because believe it or not, there's some people who listen to more than one a week and they tell me I repeated myself. So new topics. So what does he do? What is his strategy? How is he going to stop in the tracks any potential for the Jewish people organizing and rebelling? He summons he summons these Jewish midwives. One of them, their name is Shifra and the other, their name is Pua, Perak Aleph, Perak Tezva, page 294. Rashi tells us, Lomialdos, Hulashen Molidos. They are the midwives, midwifery. They are the ones who help the women deliver their children. Shifra is Yochevet, Hashem Shem Mishaperes, Esavlad. Shifra is really, the name Shifra is an allusion really to Yochevet. Shifra was none other than Yochevet. And Pua is Miriam. When a woman is in labor, you have to do two things. She needs to be physically treated, and you need to reduce and relieve her pain physically. I'm not going to make fun of anyone, because then I will not have anywhere to sleep or eat. But it's possible that somebody I know asks for the epidural as soon as they get the second line back on the pregnancy test. When the pregnancy comes back with the second line, can I have the epidural? I'm ready. And I'm made fun of, but I don't know that pain. Baruch Hashem, I got my own curse from God. Adam, Chava had her curse, but it's very painful. So one of the midwives' jobs is relieve the pain, release the pain, whether naturally or whether with a epidural. But the other is pua. Pua's midaberis is to appease, is to comfort, is to communicate, is to support, is to coach verbally. So who are these miladot Who are this Shifra and Pua? They are none over them, none other than Yocheved and Miriam. Says the Imrechaim, says the Halagavishn Tarebe, Ashemachas Shifra Shema Shinis Pua, Paro Shinalahem Shmosam. Paro changed their names. Why did Paro change their names? From Rashi it sounds like they changed their names because their role as midwives. But the Vishn Tarebe, the Imrechaim is assuming that the Paro is the one who changed their names. Not Miriam and Yochevet, but Shifra Upua. Why? Says the Imrechaim, because b'matara miyuchedes. He had one goal. Ki yadashim yisharu b'shemos ha-yehudim, Yochevet and Miriam, tisha'er lahem ha-mahus ha-yehudis, kishma garam. We know that a person is affected and impacted by their name. A parent is given divine wisdom when they choose a name. Gemara Chazal tell us that a parent has some level of prophecy when they bestow a name upon a child. Because a name is not just a random word so we all know who we're talking about. A name is a description. And when parents choose their name, they're describing the destiny of that child. The Jewish name, of course, we're talking about. Shma Garam, the name causes, the name describes, the name predicts who the person will be. So therefore, Paro understood if they use their Jewish name, Yochevet and Miriam, that will impact who they are. It will give them the courage to resist. And if they use their Jewish names, they won't have the wherewithal to be cruel and to kill their own kind. Therefore, he gave them, writes he gave them non-Jewish names. 
So you see how important it is, and we know one of the three reasons for which the Jewish people were redeemed from Egypt is because we maintained our names. Our names, our clothing, our language. A Jewish, a Yiddish, a Numen, a Yiddish, a name, a Jewish name reminds us who we are. I had a principal in high school that only called everyone by their Hebrew name. To this day, and it's now not only a few years later, he sees me and he says, how are you, Ephraim Chaim? He knows everybody's Hebrew name. He uses the Hebrew name. He wanted to remind us wherever we go in life and however we interact in life, ultimately our identity is intertwined with our Jewish name, not our secular name. Rabbi Moshe has a tshuva, not for now, about using secular names. And he points out that Amoraim, Rav Papa, Rav Zvid, we have countless examples of Amoraim in the Gemara itself. We have Baleatosvos and we have Rishonim. The Rambam's father was Maimon, a non-Jewish name. And Rav Moshe says, while it's preferable to use a Jewish name, why was it that it's attributed we were redeemed because we preserved our Jewish names? That was Kodemat in Torah. Before we had a lifestyle of Torah umitzvos to reinforce and promote and protect our Jewish identity and continuity, then the name and the dress and the language did it. But ever since we got the Torah, says Rav Moshe, a name is important and it's preferable and everyone should be aware of their Jewish name, but, but, halachically you're allowed to use a non-Jewish name. And we do. We have what we think of as Jewish names that are of non-Jewish origin. Anyone know you, you know named Sender, you know, you get excited. Ooh, Sender. What a Haimisha name, Sender. Sender is short for Alexander. Alexander is Alexander the Great. The Jewish people named their children after Alexander the Great in gratitude to him. So Jewish children you know today named Sender are named after an Alexander who are all named after Alexander the Great, not exactly a Yiddish Anumen. And nevertheless, they've morphed and, tra- and transformed into being Jewish named themselves. So Moshe has that fascinating Chiddush that there's a difference when it comes to Jewish and non-Jewish names before Matan Torah, before we receive the Torah, and after we receive the Torah. But you see how important it is. You see how important it is. I got an email yesterday from a cemetery. I did a funeral for somebody. You may remember I wrote a story about him who was a waiter in one of our local restaurants who was a mes mitzvah. He died and there was no one there to bury him and we collected the funds and we gave him a funeral. Mark with us, you remember the story. So they need to put up a, a gravestone, a tombstone, ask me if I know his Hebrew name. I don't. His own family members don't know his Hebrew name. So he left this world and didn't leave us with what his Hebrew name was, and nobody knows it. A Jew should know their Hebrew name. You see how fearful Para was of allowing them to use their Hebrew names, Yocheved and Miriam, and instead gave them other names to try to get them to overcome whatever courage they might have had. Perak Aleph Pasuk Chaf. Perak Aleph Pasuk Chaf. So the Pasuk says, So they resisted. They rebelled against Para's wishes. And they enabled Jewish boys to continue to be born. And, and it, it was, God was very grateful. What does the Pasuk say? God benefited the midwives and the people increased and they became very strong. And And when the midwives, they were God-fearing, they had Yerushalayim, they had a great sense of awe of God. What was their reward? for their resistance, for the rebellion against Paro, for helping create the continuity of the Jewish people, their uh, reward was Batim. Batim. God rewarded them for their devotion. Says the Rashi, what do you mean, Batim? He gave them Batim. So it says Rashi, What was the good? He gave them a good. What was the good? Give them a stock tip. Told them who was going to win the Super Bowl. Gave him a, a gift certificate to Neiman Marcus. What was the gift that he gave them? Thank you for the continuity. Thank you for keeping alive my children, my, my wonderful Klai Yisrael. Here's the gift. Rashi says, That's why the Torah says he gave them homes. That the homes of the priesthood and Leviim uh, and uh, Jewish kingship would descend from them. Yocheved gave birth to Moshe and Aaron, which is Kohanim and Leviim. And the Malchus descends from Miriam. So why was this specifically the reward? Why didn't Hashem give them a gift certificate to Neiman Marcus? Why didn't He give them a gift certificate to eat out one night? Why instead, Vayitav, what was the good He gave them? Vayas lahem batim. He gave them these homes, namely, they were the progenitors of Kohuna Leviya Umalchus. What is the reward? What is the correlation between the two? Says Rav Drukasha. 
מדוע הטובה שכאילו הם בתי כהונה לוי המלכוס, והלא הקדוש ברוך הוא משלם שכר מידה כנגד מידה, there should be a correlation between the merit and the reward, ומה השייכס יש בין הצעות עם ישראל לבתי כהונה לוי המלכוס, what is the connection between saving the Jewish people and being rewarded with this, והלא אדרבה, כיוון שהצילו את כלל ישראל, היה צריך לעשות להם משהו כללי, they saved the total Jewish people, יוכבד ומרים didn't just save those destined to be כהנם ולוויים, They saved all the Jewish children. So therefore, they should have Davka received something klali, something which is much more communal, much more collective. Why specifically did they receive reward for this? Listen to what he says. He quotes from the Grizz. Ravelva Salavechik, Ravitzel Gzeh Salavechik, the Rav's uncle. The truth is, the Mialdos did not save Klai Yisrael. Whoa, what do you mean? These midwives, Yechevet and Miriam, they didn't save Kla Yisrael? Well, what does that mean? Of course they did. Didn't the Pasuk just tell us that they did? So listen to the, the, the Briska Rav's insight. No. Because Paro only said the Jewish males should be murdered, not the Jewish females. So if Jewish girls and daughters were destined to be born, they could have married Gentiles. Even if, God forbid, circumstances would have meant that the only way they could have continuity was to marry non-Jews, the children would have been Jewish. The Rambam, the Gemara, Chazal, tell us, matrilineal descent, we follow the mother. So as long as the Jewish girls were allowed to live, no matter whom they would have married, you would have had Jewish continuity. So when we say the Mialdos, Yocheved and Miriam saved the Jewish people, it's inaccurate. It's a distortion. They didn't save the whole Jewish people. They only saved who? Who? Not all the Jewish people. As long as girls were born, they could have continued to have Jewish children. But what is determined by the father? Judaism is determined by the mother. But tribe status is determined by the father. If you're a Kohen, a Levi, or a king, So if Paro would have succeeded in eliminating the boys, true, you would have had Jewish children, but they all would have had non-Jewish fathers. So you'd have no Kohanim, no Leviim, no kings. So therefore they were rewarded. What was the reward? Commensurate with the merit. And what was the merit? Not saving the whole Jewish people. The merit was saving specifically the, the boys, which would have been the continuity of the Kohanim, Leviim, and Malchus, and that's why it's correlated with that. Fascinating chap by the Briskarov. Very, very interesting insight. Rabbi Salavechik, the Briskarov's nephew, we know him as the Rav, has a different answer, a different perspective. We're in Perak Aleph, Pasuk Chav still. Oh boy, and running out of time. Says the Rav, that he gave them Batim. Why? Because houses represent leadership. God turned the leadership of Israel over to these midwives. The authority to lead and teach B'nai Yisrael was transferred to them. Chazal indicate the midwives were Yocheved and Miriam. The Medrash tells us that Amram, the God of Ador, the leader of B'nai Yisrael, when Paro issued the decree to kill every Jewish baby boy, Amram divorced his wife Yocheved in despair, arguing that there's no use to having children. All males would die anyway. Miriam rebuked Amram. He said, your prescription is worse than Paro. Paro decreed only male infants must die. You're decreeing death to both male and female. With the birth of Moshe, Miriam prophesied he would become the redeemer of Israel. When Moshe was placed in the Nile, Amram became enraged with Miriam. My daughter, my daughter, what happened with your prophecy? Why did you give me such advice? In fact, Amram was completely wrong, and Miriam's optimistic approach was borne out. Immediately after the splitting of the Red Sea, after Moshe's song, the Torah records Miriam's song as well, confirming the critical role she played in Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim. When Bnei Israel left Egypt, their leader was Moshe. Earlier, when Moshe was in Midian, their ruler was Miriam. She earned this position because she was ready to sacrifice her life for the survival of the Jewish people. So Rabbi gives a different interpretation. What does it mean? Bate Levia Kahuna, this is the homes, this is the center, the capital of leadership. These women displayed the ultimate leadership, the ultimate vision, the ultimate optimism. And because of that leadership, they were rewarded with being the progenitors of the Jewish people's future leaders. That was their, that was their reward. Okay, continuing. Aleph Chavbez. Vaitzav Paro Lechala Mole Mor. So Paro tells the whole nation and he says, the boys have to be killed and the girls can survive. Says Rashi, who was he telling it to? What do you mean, his people? 
The answer is, yeah. Af alayim gazar. He even ordained this upon his people. Why did he ordain this upon his people? Yom shenolad Moshe. Amrlo itztagninov hayom yolad Moshe'an. Because the day that Moshe was born, the day that Moshe came into this world, Paro's astrologers, Paro's horoscope readers told him that the Jewish Savior is going to redeem them from you, was just born. But we don't know where. We haven't honed in. Our intelligence tells us that their Savior was born, but we haven't identified him. And we don't know if he's going to come, if he's going to emerge from the Egyptians or from the Jews. We're going to see that he's going to ultimately be in the water. That's why the Pasuk says, Every male needs to be killed. Not only Jewish, but even non-Jewish. Paro even persecuted his own people. That's how paranoid he was. Because his, <clears throat> because his prophets predicted that the, the Savior was born that day, he took them all out. The Maharal, Rav Yudaloi of Prague, in his Gurarye wonders, if the, if the astrologer saw that <clears throat> the one who was going to save the Jewish people was born that day, why couldn't they see that last missing piece? What was confusing them, wonders the Maharal. These astrologers, who had the capacity to see into the future, these astrologers who had access to this intelligence information, that the Savior was born that day, why were they limited in what they knew? Why did they only know he was born that way, that day? But what prevented them from knowing whether, in fact, he was emerging from the Egyptians or from the Jews? So listen to what the Maharal says. He says, here was the source of their confusion. And I think this is a very, very beautiful, beautiful insight. The source of their confusion was <clears throat> the biological parent of Moshe are Yocheved and Miriam. But who raises Moshe? Bisya Bas Paro, the daughter of Paro, raises him when she discovers and rescues him floating in the Nile. And the Gemara says, Legabe Bisya, Vishtoha Yehudiya Yaldas Yered Evigdor, Ela Bene Bisya Bas Paro, Shalakach Lomerid, Pasuk and Divrei Yamim. Kibisya Yalda Valo Yocheved Yalda. Why there in the end of Divrei Ayamim, sorry, in the beginning of Divrei Ayamim, why there does it identify Moshe as a descendant of the daughter of Paro? After all, Moshe's mother is none other than Yocheved. Ella, says the Gemara in Sanhedrin Yotes, kol megada ben yasom besoch beso ki ilu yoldo. Anyone who raises an orphan in their home, anyone who adopts another is as if they gave birth. And that, says the Maharal, is where they got confused. said, so we're looking into our crystal ball over here. We're checking out the horoscope over here. And we're confused. We know the Savior was born, but we can't figure out. Is he Egyptian or Jewish? We can't identify. We can't narrow in. We can't close in on where he's coming from. What confused them? Because biologically, Yocheved's the mother. But the one who raised him and therefore also has a status of a mother is none other than the daughter of Paro. What you see from this Maharal, says Rav Druk, is when the Gemara says that if you raise an orphan, if you adopt a child, if you educate, you shower love, you're generous and sponsor a child, it's not only Ki'ilu. The word Ki'ilu means as if, but as if doesn't mean as if. Because if it only meant as if, the astrologers wouldn't have been confused. They were confused because the Ke'ilu means, not just Ke'ilu, it means it's your son. Moshe had two mothers. He had a mother, Yocheved, and he had a mother, Bisya, the daughter of Paro. Not Ke'ilu, not as if she were his mother, but he had two mothers. And the Chochmah Shlomo says from here in Heaven Ezer, Semen Aleph, the Chochmah Shlomo says, the post-game debate, let's say a person, doesn't have biological children of their own. Or let's say they have children of their own. A person has 10 of their own children, and yet they have an endless heart that has so much love to give. So they nevertheless adopt. Can you fulfill Puru They have 10 boys and they don't have a girl yet, so they adopt a girl. They have no children, they adopt a boy and a girl. Can you fulfill the mitzvah of Puru the mitzvah to promulgate, the mitzvah to have children. Can you fulfill the mitzvah of Puru by adopting? So the Chachma Shloma paskins from this Chazal and from this confusion of the astrologers that you see that a person who raises a child, not ki'ilu, not as if they are the parent and therefore maybe they're Yotzei Puru Revu. Near the Zatali B'Pluk, the Drishu Taz,
The Drisha says, So the Taz and the Prisha of a Machlokas when it says Kilu doesn't mean literally, or is the Kilu only as, as if. But Rav Druk brings another Raya, and I don't know if the person who asked me this question is listening right now, but a few weeks ago when we learned earlier in Sefer Bracious, one of our listeners sent me an email with a wonderful question. We said that at the end of the story, that what was the dream that Yosef had that alienated his brothers? The dream he had was that the stars were all bowing down to him, the sun and the moon. And Rashi there tells us that the dream meant that not only were his brothers bowing down to him, but his father Yaakov and his mother Rachel. And that these, the Ramban said that those dreams came true. When everyone descends to Egypt and they uh, rely on him to live, they are Kilu bowing down to him. So one of our wonderful astute listeners emailed me, the question I was hoping at the time nobody would ask, and said, what do you mean the dreams came true? Where was Rachel? His dream included his mother and his father, son of the moon bowing down, but where was Rachel? Rachel had already died. She never came down to Egypt. So how could, how could the Ramban interpret it that way? So I didn't know then, but let me share with you now. Listen to what Rav Druk answers. The Pasuk says, And his father yelled at him, Even that Yaakov was bothered by, What are you dreaming? And Rashi said that it was his father and his mother, and it was Rachel, even though she died. So what does it mean? So listen to what he answers. He says, Who was the one who raised him? Rachel had died. It's referring to Umuchach Shabrias Chalom Nachsheves Haim Shemigadalas Papolas Ayeled Kiiluhi Imo Kiiluhi Imo. His mother had died, but who raised him? Ba 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 ba. Rachmeisav Yaakov Yidonu Javam Magim Bila. Bila raised him. Yaakov Lo Yodesh Advarim Magim LeBila. When Yaakov dreamed of the sun of the moon, it wasn't his mother Rachel; it was Bilha who raised him. And here's another example of the same principle, that the one who raises is not as if they're the mother, they're the mother. So when he saw the sun and the moon, it wasn't Yaakov and Rachel, it was Yaakov and Bila. Aye, Bila, Bila's not his mother. Bila is his mother. Rachel's his mother, but when she died and Bila took over and raised him, Bila was his mother. That is proof number two. Proof number three says Rav Druk. It says, Vaitinos Osnos Bas Potifera. Yosef marries Osnos, the daughter of Potifera. Targum Yonason says, Dina is the mother of Asnas, who was alive. Even though this girl who Yosef married is the daughter of Dina, it's his niece. Nevertheless, it's identified with Asha's Potifar, because that's the one who raised her. That's the one who raised her. And he has all these examples. And he concludes, Rav Druk, the section, If you have a star, if you have a legal document, and you write about someone who adopts you, that they're your father, or about the child, that they're your son, the document is binding. Why? Because the one who adopts, the one who raises a child, is the father. And therefore, it's not mezuyaf. It's not counterfeit. It's legit. It happens to be in Aksuba today. If somebody adopted a child, we write Ben so-and-so Hamagadlo, who raised them. But strictly speaking, the Ramah here writes, or in the context of other legal documents, then it would not be mezuyaf. It would not be counterfeit because Taka, in fact, that is considered binding. That is how the that is how the Ramah Paskins and Rav Yosef Engel and the Beis Ha'otzer hochiach ken Gemara. Abaye shayayasam amar amrali aim. Abaye says, my mother told me. What do you mean your mother? You're an orphan. Your mother died. Whom was he talking about? He was talking about the one who raised him, because the one who raised him, he called her mom. It's a very powerful lesson, particularly for those who don't have children, that if you, if you adopt, and if you nurture, and if you provide, and if you support a child, it's not as if they are your child. Halachically, they are your child. Chachma Shlomo says, maybe you can be Yotzei Puravu. The Ramah writes, you can say that they're, you could write that they are your child in legal documents. Not as if, but they are, they have the status of being your children. We'll come back to. Let's do this next piece. This is an important piece. How much time do we have? Not a lot. This piece, do we have time for it? So many great pieces here. Um, yeah, let's do this piece. Perak Beis Pasakei. Skipping ahead. Perak Beis Pasakei appears in the article Stone Chumash. 
on page 296. I was going to tell you a great revolba. You'll have to come back next year. Why doesn't it say their names? Why is it anonymous? As if we haven't already met them. A man went from the house of Levi and took a woman from the house of Levi. We're about to tell us their name, so why not tell us the name then? And these, of course, is the union of, of uh, Amram and Yochever, and they give birth to... And they give birth to Moshe. So anyway, they put him in the in the in the Nile, and he's floating. Or the daughter of Paro goes down to bathe in the Nile, and she's with her maidservants, and they see this ark floating, and she extends her hand, and miraculously it stretches, and she's able to retrieve the the uh, basket with baby Moshe. Rashi tells us that she goes to the Nile to bathe. Rashi says Bispara, why are we calling her Yehudia? Ashum Shekafra Ba'avodazara. She rebelled against the Avodazara, the idolatry of her father of Paro. The daughter of Paro went down to wash at the Nile. Says the Gemara Megillah Yud Gimel. What does it mean that she went down to the Nile to wash? She went down to the Nile to wash the idolatry of her father off of her. That's how the Gemara Megillah understands. So on this on this Pasuk. We have a lot of questions. Number one, why does it say Lerchotz al Hayor to wash on the Nile? What should it say? Lerchotz, Lerchotz Bior. Where do you wash? In the Nile, not on the Nile. Number one. And many ask, Rashi writes, Sarasa Mikro Pirshavatir Basparal, you are Lerchotzbo. The Rabban writes, malos armona melech. The Nile had steps from the palace, you had to go down, and that's why it writes. So Rashi and the Ramban are both bothered by this question, and they each give their own answer. Why does it say al hayor? She goes down to wash on the Nile. Why doesn't it say she goes to wash in the Nile? They each give their own answer. But moreover, you could ask, why does it say she goes to wash from the Gilule Besavia, the idolatry of her father? Don't say she went to wash from the idolatry of her father. Say she went to wash from idolatry. She went to go wash from Avodazara. Why she went to wash from the idolatry of her father? Number two. Number three. Number three. What happened when she went there? She is raised, saturated, marinated in the, in the contamination of Egypt. She grew up in the palace of her father. He is the source of the poison. Her whole life is paganism and idolatry. From where did she in that moment draw the strength? Where did she draw the strength? I'm leaving, I'm abandoning, I'm rejecting everything my father stands for. All of his pagan idolatry. I'm washing it off of me at the Nile. Where'd she get that strength from? So Mavarach Samsofer. Rav Juk quotes a chasam sofer with a beer nifla, a magnificent interpretation. Why the chasam sofer wonders? Does the Torah introduce this whole section, this whole part of the narrative, by telling us that a new king arose? Everybody knew that Yosef saved the economy. Yosef saved the economy, that was for that period. But why did the economy continue to grow, and why did the economy continue to thrive? Where did that come from? So listen to this inside of the Chassam Sofer. Yaakov, you remember, gave a bracha to Paro. And what was the bracha Yaakov gave to Paro? That the Nile should always be high. The Nile should always rise. The Nile should always nourish and feed the land. There should be great parnasa, great income. And, Al-Kain am so the Egyptian people looked and they said to themselves, first Yosef saved the economy, and then his father Yaakov gave a blessing through which our economy continues to thrive and is at all-time highs. Why? Because the Nile is at this tremendous high level. All of the prosperity and all of the success is because of the blessing of the father of the Jewish people, Yaakov. And where was that blessing specifically? The blessing was on the stock market. And what was the stock market of Egypt? The Nile River. So the Nile, its success, its blessing, its prosperity was all identified and connected specifically to Yaakov who had blessed it. So now says the Chassam Sofer, we can understand the Pasuk. There was a new king who arose, who said, you know what? The success of the Nile is nothing to do with that old man. He had forgotten the whole story. He forgot the story of Yosef saving the economy. He forgot the story of Yaakov blessing the Nile. And he said, The Nile is mine. I made it. I'm responsible for it. 
I've raised the economy. I've raised the Nile. This has nothing to do with the blessing of Yaakov, like Yosef said. I am the so I am God, and it's because of me. That's the Vayakam Elachadash Asherlodas Yosef. So says Rav Druk, we're running out of time, but you can imagine the rest of this magnificent piece. What happens? The daughter of Paro, she didn't decide it suddenly and out of nowhere. And why is she washing off specifically the idolatry of her father? What happened was she's studying history. And she remembers that there was a Yosef who saved the economy. And she remembers there's a Yaakov who blessed the Nile. And she says to herself, though her father's arrogant and her father's trying to take credit and her father sees himself as a deity or a god, she says something's wrong. That's not how it happened. That's not where this comes from. So she goes down to wash off the Nile. What is she washing off to wash off the idolatry? She's washing off the Gilule Avia, the idolatry of her father, Al Hayor, about the Nile. Psst, what a pshat. She's washing off her father's idolatry about the Nile. A person could succeed in the stock market and say, wow, that's all God. Kodesh Baruch Hu willed it. He gave me the idea. He gave me the investment advice. It's all Hashem. Or a person could say, it's all me. She's washing off her father's idolatry, worshiping herself. Al-Hayor about the Nile River. Psst. What a pshat based on the Chassam Sofer of Rav Druk. It was worth tuning in today just for that. Even though there's so much more I don't have time to tell you. Oh, so much more. So many more Gavaldika pieces. There was another of Druk, which was so important to tell you about Ish Mitzri and Amuna. I'll mention it tomorrow in the Amuna Shir. Tune in tomorrow morning, 8.45, the Amuna Shir, because what a message about Amuna in our Parsha when Moshe is introduced as Ish Mitzri, when he saves the girls at the well in Midian, and he says it's not, they, and they come back and report there's an Ish Mitzri who saved us. Why do they call Moshe an Ish Mitzri? It's a very powerful, important point. We'll talk about it tomorrow in the Amunashir at 8.45. 8.15 first is the 10 minutes of meaning of Mesilas Sharam. 9 o'clock tomorrow night we go behind the Bima. Until then, stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy. We barely covered anything in the Parsha. Forgive me, but it's such an amazing Parsha. You'll come back next year and we will cover more. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe to our channel. Even if you're not, please do. Have a phenomenal, fantastic day.